The campaign trail comes to South Florida. I denounce white supremacy, okay? The president takes shots and gives some in Miami. Joe Biden rallies supporters in Broward. This is the most important election in our lifetime. On your ballot, should primaries be open to all Florida voters? For me, the path is clear. Down and dirty. A state Senate race gets nasty, and so does a race for Miami-Dade Commission. Early voting starts tomorrow. A record number of people have already mailed it in. It's all this week on This Week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. It is all about the elections, and we begin with the ballot question that could fundamentally change the way you choose candidates for the general election. Amendment 3 asks voters to open primaries to all voters, including those with no party affiliation, to choose the candidates for state legislature, governor, and cabinet. The two top vote-getters, regardless of party, would then advance to the general election ballot. There are strong arguments for and against Amendment 3. And with us today, Glenn Burhans, chair of the All Voters Vote initiative that put Amendment 3 on the ballot. He's an attorney joining us from Tallahassee. And attorney Sean Shaw, former state representative, founder of People Over Profits and against the so-called jungle primaries. And he is with us from Tampa. Gentlemen, good morning. Hey, good morning. Good to see good you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. All right, let me just briefly ask both of you, make your case for and against Amendment 3. Glenn Burnens, why don't you begin? Well, our political system is broken. As anybody knows, we've become very highly polarized and our political discourse has become very divisive. And I think a key reason for that is because in Florida, we are leaving out 28% of the electorate. Three and a half million voters are shut out of the process. These are voters who are legally qualified to vote, legally registered to vote, and pay taxes to fund the elections that they're blocked from participating in. I think if we give voice to those voters, including the one and a half million minority voters who shut out of the process, we'll have a much more diverse result and a result in elections that fully and fairly reflects Florida's diversity. All right, and if we can, Sean Shaw, uh, bring us your point of view against Amendment 3. Is it principally because you believe that this system would bleach the primary system, make it much harder for black or Hispanic candidates to be elected? Yes, yes, simply yes. I, I actually agree with much of what the uh, my opponent on the other side said, but the problem with this proposal, Amendment 3, is that it goes a step further than just allowing NPA voters to participate in primaries. It totally does away with partisan primaries completely, such that essentially, Republicans and Democrats and everybody now votes would vote in a giant primary, and that's the issue I have with it. Those uh, that now, as a Democratic candidate, for example, you've got to appeal to NPAs and Republicans, uh, and when you start doing that, that leads to the uh, the bleaching, so to speak, even more so, uh, and that's principally why I'm against it. You know, I, I want to delve into that concept in just a moment, but Glenn, you know, I want to pick up on Sean's point there. I think a, a lot of people that I'm, I'm hearing really would love to see the primaries open, just not in this particular method with that everybody on one ballot, top two, go to the general. So why, why was this particular method what made the ballot? Well, Glenda, if I could just correct something that the representative got wrong. 
Amendment 3 would not prevent the parties from selecting their own candidates in a system that they choose and a system that they pay for. So they can still nominate their own candidates. That doesn't change with all voters vote. They would just, of course, have to run in the top two runoff election. Now, to, to get to your point, the reason why we think all voters vote is the way to go is because it gives the voters the most flexibility and freedom to choose candidates who best reflect their views. You know, people shouldn't be forced to join a political party just to cast a ballot that matters, just to cast a vote for who's going to represent them. You know, compelled association is the stuff of communist and socialist regimes. It shouldn't be the law in Florida. Yeah. Uh, Sean Shaw, as it happens, I am NPA, as I should be as a political reporter, no party yes. affiliation. And I have to say, August 18th, I wanted to vote in this primary, and I could not. Don't want to make this about me, but what about the 3.7 million Floridians who are not a member of a party and get shut out of primaries? I mean, that simply strikes me and some people as almost anti-democratic. What do you say? No, I, I, I get that argument. I'll, I'll respond to it in two ways. One, some would say uh, that if you want to participate in a party primary, you need to join a party. But number two, I think I would even agree that in some way I would be in favor of allowing NPAs to participate in the primary process. Again, to your co-host point, I just don't think this is the way to do it. Well, this how, is what would be the uh, way. This is a way that is not yeah. not good for minorities, not good for progressive candidates. Uh, and I think that latter point is something that is part of the reason they're doing this. You but know, Sean, though, that, that's almost antithetical because what you said before really resonates. In a primary, you have candidates who may be pretty moderate candidates, whether Democrat or Republican, who in a primary play to the extremes because it is the most partisan right. voters who come out on, on primary day. And, and to your point before, in a primary where everybody's voting, wouldn't that make a candidate be forced to appeal to the broadest part of the electorate with a much more moderate and conciliatory platform? It, it probably would, to be honest. It would, it would produce more moderate candidates. That, that is not a point that I'm going to argue. That, I will concede that point. But it also is going to produce less diverse candidates. Um, How so? so? Take, take us through that. about both of those things. And you've also got to think about, listen, I'm a Democrat. I don't want Republicans choosing or having a say in who my person is that's going to advance to the next, to the general. Um, I want to be the one that chooses that. That's, that's a point that Respectfully, a lot of people that's, are making. that's not how all voters vote works. Under this all voter vote system, the parties can still pick their own candidates. This is not about the parties. This is about empowering more voters to participate in the process. It's not just that we're talking about three and a half million voters. We're talking about a million and a half voters of color who are shut out of the process. So Glenn, 1. Glenn, explain that. Women voters explain that if you yes. would, because if everybody's on one ballot and everybody votes, how would a party still be able to pick its candidate? Prior to the all voters vote top two primary, the parties can do what they've done in other states and could have nominating competitions or caucuses where they select their own candidates. The important thing is this isn't about the parties. The parties still have the ability to choose their own champions, but we will have a primary system where all voters get a say. And I think, you know, only a politician would come up with the argument that 
disenfranchisement would result by adding three and a half million voters to the process, or that minority access could somehow be harmed by adding a million and a half minority voters to the process. That's just silly. You know, every person, every vote deserves equal dignity under the law, and that's all we're asking for with all voters vote. Yeah, uh, I'm not just a politician, I'm black. And let me tell you this too, I've run for office statewide and here in a majority minority district. And it is just a fact that when you start taking down the black voter electorate from a 70% to under 50%, you inherently reduce the ability of black people to get elected. I'm not saying they cannot, I'm not saying they will not, I'm saying it makes it much more difficult when the black voter share, as it will in certain state Senate seats, goes from 70 down to 40. So I'm not just a politician, I'm also someone who has experience, not just from running, but from being a minority and having to run in these races. And I gladly voted for you when you ran for attorney general, but what you're forgetting, Representative, is that in 2022, the state is going to go through reapportionment. If adopted, all voters' vote would become effective starting in elections in 2024. So it's incumbent upon the legislature when these districts are redrawn two years from now that they follow the law, that they draw the districts fairly and not abridge the right of minorities. So the only way that minority access districts can be adversely affected is not by letting all voters vote, it's if the legislature fails to follow the law during reapportionment. And I pledge Representative Shaw to stand shoulder to shoulder with you to make sure that we hold the legislature to account yeah. to make sure that not only do all voters get to vote, but every voice, including minority voices, are heard in the electoral process. Yeah, Glenn, I, I need to get in here and ask you a, a kind of a money question. Uh, this amendment really was going nowhere, collecting signatures. Uh, some signatures until Mike Fernandez, the billionaire Coral Gables healthcare uh, good guy. I like him. He's a, a friend of mine. He do donated $6 million to this cause, which led one of the critics, a Democratic state senator, to say essentially this is a dilettante billionaire who has had a tantrum and is trying to get this on the ballot. What, what's your response to that? I think that's shameful. And, you know, Mike is a friend of mine as well. He's a great American. He came from literally nothing, an immigrant. He built up successful businesses, and he's been a philanthropist and championed many great causes, including immigration reform. And, you know, it's funny, the same politicians that try to denigrate him now tripped all over themselves to take his money when it suited their purposes. But now that he wants to reform a broken system, like you, he's an NPA. Like me, I, he's an NPA. He wants to fix a broken system, but now the politicians have a problem with him doing that. I think it's shameful, but I guess it, it's not to be unexpected yeah. coming from politicians. Well, we know he is putting his money where his mouth is, and to that degree, we salute Mike Fernandez, and we thank both you, uh, Sean Shaw in Tampa, thank you, and also Glenn Burhans and Tallahassee. For framing those arguments really well. Appreciate your time. Up next, Miami-Dade Commission is about to get the biggest turnover in recent history. And the District 7 race between Cindy Lerner and Raquel Regalado, certainly one of the most contentious. And up next, they will debate. All politics is local, as the saying goes, and it doesn't get any more local than your county commissioner. Because of new term limits, half of the 13-member commission will turn over for the first time in recent history. And one of the more contentious races is for District 7, and that reps Key Biscayne in Miami, South Miami, Pinecrest, and Kendall. 
The candidates are with us this morning live. Cindy Lerner is a former Pinecrest mayor, former state representative. Raquel Regalado is an attorney, radio broadcaster, former member of the Miami-Dade School Board. Ladies, good morning. Good Great morning. to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's begin with sort of the basic question. And Cindy Lerner, let me ask you to give a good, concise answer. Why are you the best candidate to fill the seat in District 7? I'm the best candidate because I'm the most prepared, the most experienced, the most credentialed, uh, having operated as mayor of Pinecrest for uh, eight, what I call glorious years, uh, served as president of Miami-Dade League of Cities, representing all of the municipalities in Miami-Dade County and being a former state representative. I have the experience and the vision for uh, how to move the county forward at a time where we desperately need uh, somebody who is ready to hit the ground running and has the kind of relationships and experience to do what needs to be done to improve the quality of life All for right. everybody, if you, not if only you, in District if, 7. If, 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 if you would, Cindy, I beg your pardon, want to give Raquel equal time to respond. Uh, Raquel, Thank good you. morning. Tell us why you believe you are the best morning. candidate. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first and foremost, I think my experience at the school board, uh, when the educational budget in Florida was cut by $2 billion, prepares me uh, to handle what's coming, the deficit that's coming to Miami-Dade County. As you all know, when I was at the school board, I sued VP, I restructured transit, and I really did everything possible uh, to ensure that we provided best services without raising taxes. The Miami Herald has endorsed me twice because of my knowledge of the budget, my involvement with the county, and my ability to get things done. I think in this race, people have an opportunity to make a generational change. And now more than ever with the pandemic, we need representation on the Board of County Commissioners of working women, of women that are dealing with online learning. Uh, my work at the school board speaks for itself. Uh, the school board budget is the only thing that can be compared to the Miami-Dade County budget. And a lot of the issues that the county is dealing with right now are the issues that I was talking about in my 16 mayoral race. Traffic to sewer, what's going on in transportation, going to Broward. I talked about all these issues. And after that election, the county implemented them. And I'm the person that should take this district forward and the best person to represent District 7. So let's, let's talk about those issues because unlike four years ago, this year, every issue, and there are so many of them, are now taken over by COVID. The health personally of the county, the health economically of the county. So I, you have both been very critical about the current mayor's handling of COVID and managing uh, in the county. And so one at a time, Cindy, why don't you go first? What would you do differently and how would you pay for it? Well, first of all, the uh, county commission had no role to play in the uh, determination of how to reopen the county. There were, nor did the media for that matter. So there was a very top, have top down heavy approach to how to resolve the problems. We've never had the testing that needed to be implemented and as uh, Daniela Levine Cava is recommending in her uh, mayoral uh, platform, we need a chief medical officer and we need to ramp up the county health departments because they've just suffered 
tremendously by state and county uh, uh, elimination of real outreach into the community. And we're going to have to be much better prepared in the future. Raquel? Yeah, yeah Raquel? Well, uh, my, my view is completely different. I've been critical of how the county commission has failed to act. At the last commission meeting, they had the opportunity to reduce the mayor's emergency powers. Emergency powers were never drafted uh, by the county commission or, the, uh, or um, our charter to go beyond 100 days. The county commission could have acted and they decided not to act. They have misspent the CARES Act money. And the first thing we need to do legislatively is to curtail the power of the mayor and to ensure that we have a county commission that acts and that allows people the opportunity to participate in the discourse. Now what we have is a dramatic change with the governor's new executive order. Now Miami-Dade County or no other county uh, can make any changes in terms of closing without the governor's input and without his approval. This is a direct hit at our home rule. We have a lot of home rule challenges. We have the one with MDX, and now we have this executive order, and we have to respond legislatively. As to how we're going to pay for it, listen, there's a lot of opportunities uh, to really of course correct at the county one of the big issues that i have with this past budget is that they passed their five-year capital outlay plan without even considering COVID. they're building a 17 million dollar building for mosquito control without even considering our use of space and how many county buildings are empty because people are working from home so we want to go back to that budget there's a lot of things that can be changed a lot of costs that can be saved just like we did at the school board when we were in difficult times. Yeah, Cindy Lerner, let me bring up a kind of unpleasant subject, but one that needs to be discussed. Maybe you want to discuss it as well. And that is obviously the video that has sort of made the rounds on social media that shows you being baited at a Pinecrest City Commission meeting. And you are, you know, you are berating the people who are taking after you and it raises the subject i guess of temperament and the ability to act in a collegial fashion respect voters uh we're going to run just a little bit of the video don't know the provenance of the video don't know exactly how it got out there but respond to it tell us what what is your view of this this is a public hearing. I this don't is a public hearing. You are hearing my attitude. Karen, you are out of order. You are out of order. Do the residents have the option of having you police brought in? Because I am being abused. You can be escorted out. Okay, well, uh, we apologize for sort of rolling that over you, but, you know, your voice is raised. You are clearly uh, irritated speaking sharply to these people. Uh, we don't know the exact circumstances, but explain what it was and how you generally deal with constituents. Okay, thank you for this opportunity, Michael, because this ad has been put out by my opponent on TV commercials, through texting, through social media. Um, and it is clearly, as you said, um, uh, a snippet that provides you the moment that I have opened my mouth, but not what preceded that. So the viewers have no context whatsoever. Um, that particular individual, uh, Karen Ross, is the wife of Bob Ross, who was on the council, and uh, she would come to meetings regularly and not abide by the rules of decorum. She would march herself up to the podium in the middle of our 
council discussions and just start chastising us. I, as the um, mayor, had the responsibility to try to regain decorum yeah, and we, we, encourage Cindy, people we, to be in we, their place. We, we get you, and I'm glad for the context. I guess the question is, here we live in a county of more than 2 million people, and before COVID, hundreds would show up at county commission meetings, in addition to your 12 fellow commissioners, can you treat them with dignity and the respect they deserve? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was elected to a second term as mayor, unopposed. So the people of Pinecrest gave me uh, the opportunity to continue to lead them. And I was elected president of the Miami-Dade County League of Cities. So all of the municipalities, the mayors and the council people as well, uh, had faith in me, respect for me, and knew that I had respect for them. They know uh, as a result of the endorsements that I have, I've got over 25 current and former officials, local, state, and federal. Yeah. We, we understand, with... Cindy, we understand you have a, a lot of endorsements. So does Raquel. Raquel, when it comes to this video, how do you read it? What does it tell you about, about uh, Ms. Lerner's temperament and ability to serve? Listen, everything that we've talked about in this campaign in regards to Ms. Lerner has to do specifically with what we would be doing at the county commission, uh, the way that she treats residents, whether she likes them or not, whether they dated her or not, um, I think is important because, listen, as elected officials, we're here to encourage people to participate in meetings. Um, and, and, you know, I, I doubt how Pinecrest could be, you know, that polemic that she has to respond in that way. I was at the school board. You guys have covered the school board meetings. You know how emotional they get. You know, you know the issues that we've dealt with. No one at the school board has ever chastised anyone. In fact, when people get belligerent with us, we thank them for coming. You know, we understand that they feel strongly about this issue. Raquel. And, and now more than ever, we need people uh, to be understanding and to be respectful. Raquel. Uh, and, yes. Hi. Hate to cut you off. We need to go to a break, but we're going to call an audible here because there are really many more issues that are much more important to voters, and we're going to get to those when we come right back. So stay tuned. Stay with us. We are back with Cindy Lerner and Raquel Regalado, both vying for District 7 Miami-Dade Commission seat. And uh, going forward, aside from COVID, transit is a huge issue and will continue to be. And right now it is bus versus rail. Uh, Cindy and Raquel, please go ahead and take uh, 30 seconds each, if you would, and talk about team rail or team, uh, team traffic, highways or rail, why and how do you pay for it? What do you want to go first? Uh, Raquel, why don't you take this one first? Perfect. Awesome. Well, if you guys will remember in 16, I actually submitted uh, a transit plan that the county uh, later copied when we talked about the need for ridership and how we had to focus on housing around transit hubs, how we needed to go to Broward in order to increase our ability to get federal funding and how Miami-Dade County had not applied for federal funding. Right after the 16 election, they actually changed your transit plan to be like mine and they applied for federal funding and now we're making transit hubs around uh, um, uh, housing around transit hubs a priority. 
Now, we all want rail, and the question is how to pay for it. There's been different plans in the last two years. There was one that I think we should go back to, which was proposed by MBS, which actually wanted to put little bridges on the busway uh, and allow people uh, to use it as a toll road and then put that money into a separate account that would be used for the matching funds to bring rail uh, down that corridor. But I think now that we have the 27th Avenue and the 37th Avenue and we're going to go to Broward, we can increase our ridership, which can allow us to apply for state and federal funding. And we can use buses for now, but definitely it has to be rail. Cindy, you've been a, a proponent of rail. Absolutely. So I still firmly believe that there should be a one-ticket ride from Homestead all the way to the Broward County line. How do we get there? It had been our hope. We had a strong coalition together several years ago to try to get the recommended uh, mode to be rail. And it was actually Mayor Jimenez and, at the time, Chair Bobo, who dashed our hopes, um, but not permanently. Uh, I believe that with what the commission has actually put in place since that uh, determination with uh, upzoning along the corridors and the transit-oriented development opportunities, many ways of financing rail that would be mixed use. You'd have transit station, affordable housing, that is transit-oriented development, which is exactly what we want. That could be done not only along the southern corridor, but along the, the northern corridor as well. So I will continue to fight for a uh, solution that brings in uh, the private uh, developers who want access to those corridors and will collaborate with the county to create the kind of transit-oriented development that we all want to see. All right, well, much more to say about traffic and rail versus rapid bus, but let's move on to sea level rise, climate change, resilience in Miami-Dade County. Raquel Recalado, this has been, well, for both of you, it's been a topic of, of emphasis. What would be your overarching kind of uh, a plan to address sea level rise uh, climate change in Miami-Dade? Well, uh, the good news is that Miami-Dade County finally had the task force for Biscayne Bay. They have the task force recommendations. They made it a priority. They put it in the budget. Uh, the city of Miami has also made septic to sewer a priority. I've been talking about this since 16. Uh, and finally, the county commission is willing to move forward on it. I think that we have to start with inspections. Uh, the first item that I'm going to bring to the county commission is an inspection paradigm for these septic tanks, and then we're going to create task groups uh, and work with utilities to see what other work is being done by the municipalities and what needs to be done unincorporated. So definitely septic to sewer has to be our number one priority. I do not agree with the Army Corps of Engineers and the wall that they're doing. Miami-Dade County has to work with the DDA and with the city of Miami. We need mangroves. We need gray spaces. Right, Raquel, uh, and we need I, something I more than just in terms of storm surge. Raquel, and then finally, so my dad's in the bonds, Miami forever, uh, to help with sea level rise. The county needs to in do something 30, also. We need more than Raquel, a vulnerability study. Raquel, we need please, actual work let, and let, let's, let's give Cindy Lerner at least 30 seconds here, weigh in uh, your philosophy on climate change, sea level rise. So as Mayor Pinecrest, I actually dug in on climate change and sea level rise. We created a climate action plan. 
Uh, as president of the League of Cities, I went to Mayor Jimenez and said, you need to be collaborating with all the cities. So my first uh, step one for the county, if elected, will be to have a sea level rise climate change committee dedicated to those issues at the commission so it can't be ignored and to make sure the county does a countywide vulnerability assessment of all of the infrastructure, the residential, the business, the governmental structure, and the populations, because we've got extremely vulnerable populations. We cannot prioritize where to invest until we know the level of vulnerability. Right. So these thank, are thank processes you. that are nationally adopted. Right. Cindy Lerner, Raquel Regalado, great to have you on and uh, a very tough and well-fought race. Good luck to both Thanks of you. Thanks for your time, ladies. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, up next, we are going to take a closer look at another very hotly contested race. State Senate incumbent Jose Javier Rodriguez faces a challenge from the founder of Latinas for Trump. Stay tuned. One of the so-called down-ballot races that is attracting a lot of attention here is for the state Senate in District 37 in Miami-Dade. Incumbent Jose Javier Rodriguez faces an aggressive challenge from the founder of Latinas for Trump. His challenger, Ileana Garcia, is running ads trying to link Rodriguez with socialist movements in Latin America, but provides no evidence of any of those connections. Garcia did not respond to our invitations to join us this morning by phone and email and social media. State Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez did, and he's with us right there via Skype. Hello, Senator. Good to see you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. We're so glad we, to have you. Can we start with that whole, you know, this socialist label sort of surfaced for the Republicans in 2018 elections. And, and so your opponent is using this national strategy to tag you with that label, uh, which really speaks to a lot of people in our community who are from socialist dictatorships, Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, etc. And, um, and for you, that's kind of odd because your family is Cuban-American. So I wonder if, if you would tell us how you hear that. Yeah. So, so first of all, I mean, I've been focused on the, my, my record and the work here and the work to be done for District 37 and prioritizing our residents. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the attacks in this race really are imported from D.C. Uh, they're the sort of talking points that don't really match what's actually happening in the district and specifically with the charge uh, of somehow socialism. Uh, first of all, I take that personally. As you mentioned, I'm the son of a Cuban exile. My work in Tallahassee has demonstrated the, quite the opposite. Uh, when it came to uh, divesting the state of Florida from the Maduro regime, I'm the one who proposed that and got that done. Uh, when it come to, came to condemning Ortega, Nicaragua this year, I'm the one who sponsored and got a unanimous passage on that. So it's baseless, it's absurd, and it's insulting. And I think the other piece to this is that, for me, it's kind of a smokescreen, right? I mean, I'm focused on health care, economic recovery, climate. Uh, and we're here at a moment where we're almost 16,000 Floridians lost to COVID-19. Tens of thousands of Floridians are applying every week. Um, and so what exactly is it that, that, that my, my Trump-tied Republican uh, opponent has, uh, as an agenda for the district, we, we don't really hear that. What we hear are these, again, imported attacks from, from, from D.C. So let's focus on District 37, what we need here, 
uh, health care, economic recovery, affordable housing, taking COVID-19 seriously. Uh, those are the issues that my constituents need to hear from. And, and I'm happy to, yeah. to talk about that and my record working hard uh, in the past and present on all those yeah. issues. Senator, we, we certainly wish that uh, Ms. Garcia were here and could explain that herself. Let me ask you about something else since you raised COVID-19 <clears throat> and the destruction of the state's economy for quite a while. It is starting to recover a bit. But the state's unemployment insurance system is still not working uh, the way it should. Many of your constituents are still trying to get their $275 a week. So uh, I know that some of your colleagues in the Senate, uh, Jason Pizzo from North Miami, Jeff Brandis, Republicans, Democrats have been trying, working to try to make that system work better. Uh, if you are reelected, what would you do to make the state unemployment insurance system uh, work efficiently? Absolutely. So there's a whole range of things that we need to be doing during this pandemic uh, for the people of Florida, helping small business, uh, tackling the public health crisis, but absolutely front and center needs to be reform of, of our uh, unemployment system. Uh, I rolled out a legislative package along with a number of my colleagues uh, earlier this, this week uh, where uh, a lot of these ideas are not new. There are things that I have filed, uh, you know, many years ago, others have filed, and we have not been able to get them through the Republican legislature. Uh, but really what it comes down to is the fact that the state of Florida is the stingiest state in the entire country when it comes to our unemployment system. Right, $275 a week. What, what do you think the compensation number should be? More like $400 a week? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, uh, we propose uh, raising the cap to 500. Uh, that would put us about the middle of states. That wouldn't even put us at the at the top. Uh, it would put us at about the middle. Again, and that's the cap. It's someone's income and et cetera, and earnings justify that. That's how they would do it. But I think one of the reasons it's important, and many of my colleagues have made this point as well, it's a self-inflicted wound for Florida. Right? Uh, our businesses have paid taxes into the system. Uh, out-of-work Floridians uh, are, are, are just in the situation where they never expected to be in. Our local economies are hurt. And also, it, it, the fact that our system is is so poorly managed, uh, so many uh, hurdles in it, and, and it's so stingy, we are not able to swiftly draw down all the relief that's available So, still. Senator, real, real quickly, we, we have been talking about those issues. What's the fix? Well, the fix is we need to pass a bill in the legislature and we need the political will. There's two pieces to this. Number one, we need to pass this bill that I'm proposing in the legislature. Um, and, and, you know, it's, in, it's impossible for a lot of my constituents to understand. But for the last seven months, we have been fighting really hard to trigger a special session. We've used all the political and legal mechanisms we can to get back to Tallahassee and do our work. The Republicans will not let us do that. The other side to this is not just a legislative fix to our unemployment system, but but frankly, at the administrative level, and I'm talking about uh, Governor DeSantis and the Department of Economic Opportunity, there are so many old problems on top of new problems for out-of-work yeah. Floridians no, we, that cause havoc, not just for them, but the local yeah. communities and a lot of businesses that have yeah. seen their you know, the employees they've had to lay off going through yeah. this and are just you know exasperated because it, I mean they wish they yeah, could do something. I, we hear from... Believe me, we hear from exasper uh, exasperated Floridians who have not gotten their money, got it late or whatever. You've got a big job ahead if you are reelected. JJR, as he is known to his friends, Jose Javier Rodriguez, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Coming up, the virtual roundtable. Stay tuned. Campaigns came through South Florida this week, so we want our friends with great political minds to weigh in. Mark Caputo covering the presidential race from Florida for Politico, and David Smiley, political reporter for the Miami Herald. Hi, everyone. Hi, you Hi. guys. Hey. Glad, glad to see you again. Uh, if we can, let's begin with those dueling town meetings. I want to get you both to weigh in on what you saw. I thought that Saturday Night Live's parody last night uh, of the Biden town meeting was pretty good. It was like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And uh, the Trump uh, session, of course, was prickly and combative. Uh, Mark Caputo, what's the takeaway? Well, it probably pretty much sums it up. Uh, part of the <laughs> President Trump's problem is that he's, you know, he's had a variety of unanswered questions from when he knew he got sick to when he knew he got well, and also about his taxes and the like. And, Savannah Guthrie at NBC certainly used that opportunity to, to press the point. The Trump folks hated it, but the reviews seem to be in. And surprisingly, the uh, ABC broadcast of Biden was watched far more than the NBC one, even though the NBC one was broadcast across all of its multiple platforms. You think that was because of a national social media campaign by the Democrats to have everybody try to make that happen? My best guess is this, is that even if you talk to Biden's own campaign, they'll acknowledge he's just not as well known as Trump. And if you look at a lot of his ads, they're mainly biographical positive ads. People want to, I think, on the whole, want to know a little more about Joe Biden. Uh, this is the final stage of the campaign. It's kind of the, the, the final stage of voters deciding who they want to take home as president, so to speak. And if you believe the polling, and that's a big if, Biden so far is winning that race, and the ratings on TV kind of indicate that as well. David, you know, the, uh, the town halls had people questioning the candidates that were undecided. Who on earth is undecided <laughs> at this point, and, and did they hear anything to make them decide? Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to, to, to think about what, what makes the voter undecided at this point. But, you know, we know in Florida, four years ago, a lot of votes broke late for Trump. And um, and even if there are only, say, 5% of voters undecided in the state of Florida, I mean, you're still talking about a half a million or more voters in a state that's going to be decided by one point or less, most likely. So that's still a whole lot of people. And I don't think everybody consumes news the same way. Everyone isn't necessarily locked into the 24-hour news cycle. A lot of people dealing with their lives and all the craziness that that entails and maybe aren't paying attention to the rallies and the commercials and everything like that. So a lot of people kind of checked out on politics until the last minute. So I, I do think there's still uh, a lot of persuading to be done for a very crucial and, and yet very small segment of the electorate. Yeah. David uh, and, and Mark, I thought that, in fact, Savannah Guthrie was excellent, you know, was civil, but did not let him get away with anything. And then when he did disavow white supremacists, but couldn't answer the question about QAnon, um, I think that, uh, I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, to say, yeah, they're against pedophilia, and I am too, that doesn't cut it, Mark, does it? Well, I guess we're going to see, uh, but th this is part of the reason that you see the disparity between the way Joe Biden gets questions and President Trump does. But President Trump, let's just charitably say, does very unorthodox things that are going to lead people to ask questions like that, yeah. and when he doesn't answer them, they're going to ask more of them. Is it troubling that the president said, you know, QAnon or whatever they do or are, 
he didn't know about them. <laughs> that, that to me was, was really the sticking point because QAnon kind of had its coming out party at his rally in Tampa more than a year and a half ago um, that a president wouldn't know about any group that's so high profile in his campaign. Well, is, is that troubling? Uh, that's a question for me. I, you know, I just, I, uh, the president hasn't always had a reputation for telling the truth. So I, I'm not sure where this falls in that continuum. Uh, David, let me ask you about a moment. I think you were there, or you certainly wrote about it, and we all saw it. Uh, Monday in Sanford, when the president made his sort of maiden voyage out for these big rallies where nobody, hardly anyone, wears a mask, there came Governor Ron DeSantis down the entryway, high-fiving all these people, and then he goes around the corner and touches his face. Uh, it, it, it was kind of, frankly, a, a gross and unwise moment. What, what, what do you yeah, the governor. The governor has given us a number of sort of internet meme-worthy moments during the pandemic of him exhibiting behavior that we would not encourage people to do during the pandemic if they want to not catch COVID. And this was uh, another example. Uh, but I mean, largely, you know, Republican leaders want to behave as if the pandemic is, is behind us. The worst is behind us. Um, sometimes they talk about it as if it doesn't exist at all. Um, and, and so I think Governor DeSantis uh, was behaving in, in a way that he wants uh, Floridians to, to, to uh, view the pandemic as being behind us and not something that we still need to necessarily worry about on a uh, hour by hour, minute by minute basis. That, that is certainly the optics. You know what I found really interesting about both campaigns coming to Florida is the very specific constituencies that the campaigns were, were focusing on, and Florida has a lot of them, uh, Hispanics and the Jewish vote and the black vote and the elderly vote. And, and, and so Mark, just focusing an event on a particular constituency, uh, Caribbean Americans for Biden, seniors for President Trump, does that work with the general electorate? I mean, can you be all things to all people in Florida? Well, I guess that's the $242 million question in Florida. That's the number of ads that have been run here alone. Wow. So, uh, you know, they're, they're trying, it's not just the Trump and Biden campaigns, that's also their supporters, and that's statewide ad spend to date. But, um, you know, part of appealing to voters is showing up. And, you know, the campaigns are showing up in their different ways. You know, Donald Trump is showing up much more in the flesh, obviously, and Biden more virtually. And Mark, Biden was Mark, having I beg struggles for a while. I beg your pardon. We're going to have to leave it there. We are out of time. Come back. Oh, are we'll, awesome. Thanks so much. We will have more time. David <laughs> Smiley, Mark Caputo, thanks. Stay tuned. Local 10 wants to help you vote, help make your ballot count for an in-depth look at the most important races and issues, as well as a closer look at mail-in voting versus early and in-person voting. Join us for Ready, Set, Vote, an election special tonight at 7 here on Local 10. And we thank you for being with us this hour. And remember, we are online 24-7 at local10.com. Stay informed, get involved. This is a Local 10 editorial with WPLG President Bert Medina. We've heard from the candidates. Now's your turn. If you're a registered voter, it's time to get out and vote. Election day is Tuesday, November 3rd. You can vote on election day or you can take part in early voting. 
In Miami-Dade, Broward, and Monroe counties, early voting starts October 19th. For locations and hours, go to local10.com. If you have a mail-in ballot, fill it out now and return it to one of the early voting locations. It's easy. It doesn't matter if you vote early, by mail, or wait until Election Day. What matters is that you vote. Of course, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Let's continue it on Local10.com. This has been a Local 10 editorial. We encourage the presentation of contrasting points of view.